Pray together. Heavenly Father, we um, we are thank you. We we thank you that um, you remember us and and that um, you have made promises to bind even yourself to us. We thank you that you've given us your son, Jesus Christ, that we might see your promises in the flesh. That you promise never to leave us or to forsake us. And seeing your son on the cross, we know that is true. For he went lower than we will ever go. And so he can be with us. We pray that he would be with us now. And we pray that your spirit would be refreshing our minds and stirring our affections for Jesus, that we might see him clearly and and hear his voice and so come to him in faith. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The author, poet, and and farmer, (laughs) the author, poet, and farmer, Wendell Berry, tells an absolutely beautiful story in a book named for its main character, Hannah Coulter. It's a story told through Hannah's eyes, and it will have tears running down yours as you read of the life she lived and the loves she enjoyed. At one point early on in her story, Hannah is engaged to be married to a young man named Virgil. The two of them behaved as most engaged or or newlywed couples do. They enjoyed each other in the present and they dreamed of their future. But war was on the horizon and Virgil would soon go off to fight. Reminiscing about that time, Hannah says, when you're old, you can look back and see yourself when you were young. It's almost like looking down from heaven. And you see yourself as a young woman, just a big girl, really, half awake to the world. You see yourself happy, holding in your arms a a good, decent, gentle, beloved young man with the blood keen in his veins, who before long is going to disappear, just disappear into a storm of hate, flying metal and fire, and you don't know it. The war would tear Virgil out of her arms but they had a brief moment when they could enjoy holding one another and together dream about a future that was better than their present reality. Their wedding was held in a preacher's living room. And from there, they went to live with Virgil's parents. Their space was not cramped, but it was not their own. So they slept in Virgil's adolescent bed and dreamed of building a house. There was a house that was theirs to live in, It was part of Virgil's familial inheritance, but to call it a house would be far too generous. One day they went there to imagine their future together. As they walked across the floor, Hannah recalled that the ghost of the house that had been there surrounded us. All that was left of it were the two chimneys, a pile of old foundation stones, and the well top with a rusty pump lying beside it. This was a ruin but it was their ruin. Together they closed their eyes and they imagined it restored. 
They listened and they could almost hear the laughter echoing around the saturated dinner table. They could almost smell the garlic and butter that had escaped the kitchen. All around them was rubble. This was supposed to be an exercise in faith and hope. In the rubble, they saw the promise of their happiness, but it was actually ignorance they indulged that day. Blissful ignorance, but ignorance nonetheless. Without any assurances or promises to cling to, their behavior was painful sentimentalism. War was rumbling. War that would leave more houses, Hannah herself looking like the one they had inherited. As Hannah and Virgil walk through their barren home, you can see Abraham and Isaac walking behind them. This father and son slept in tents, but spent their days walking up and down the land of Israel, envisioning what it would be like to live there. Their reality and their imagination produced drastically different pictures. And they conducted the same kind of reconnaissance as Hannah and Virgil, but they did so in a different way, under orders, armed with assurances. In Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, raise your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Rise up, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Abraham and Isaac were not ignorant or caught up in painful sentimentalism as they walked this land. No, this was an act of faith. They were acting on the promises of God. God presented them with a vision that contradicted their present reality, and so they lived their lives with a prevailing dissonance. They endured this with the hope of that future promise as their strength. The author of Hebrews commends them for their obedience in this matter, acknowledging that they died in faith without having received the promises. But from a distance, they, they saw them and they greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they had every opportunity to return to it. But as it is, they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God was not ashamed to call them, be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. God is, is pleased with the saints who strengthen themselves, gird themselves with his promises as they endure the dissonance of an incomplete and broken reality before them. Endurance, adamance under such circumstances is a sign of faith as the author of Hebrews defines it. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Faith is what God requires as he lays out for us a vision of the future that's better than our present reality. His promises provide hope. They provide the strength to endure the present. It's his way of preserving his people as we wait for him to work in history and in our, life, in our lives towards the fulfillment of his promises. And this is exactly what we see him doing in the first and second visions of the prophet Zechariah 
that round out the first chapter of the book bearing that prophet's name. The imagery of the visions are a bit unusual. In the first vision, there are horses of different colors, and in the second vision, there are horns and and craftsmen. If you read it and wonder aloud to yourself, what is going on, then take comfort in the fact that Zechariah asked that very question in almost every single one of the visions recorded for us in the first eight chapters. He was in need of an explanation just as much as we are. And luckily, we benefit from him asking the question first, because with each vision, we have a bit of an explanation to help us make sense of what's going on. We'll spend the vast majority of our time in the first vision, the one with the nighttime gathering of different colored horses under a myrtle tree. What is going on here is something we'll see again in Zechariah, and also we see in the opening chapters of Job. These horses and their riders have gathered in order to report to God where they have been and what they have discovered. The image here, as well as in Job and other places in Zechariah, is it intended to convey the sovereignty, the omniscience, the all-knowingness of God. He is aware of all that's going on in the world, everything and everyone. Even Satan, according to Zechariah 3 and Job 1, reports to God about their comings and goings. No one can do anything without God knowing it, commissioning it, or granting his permission. We hear echoes of this truth even in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus says to Simon Peter before predicting his denial, Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. God is is never reactive in history, but actively working within it to accomplish what is good and necessary for his children. According to verse 11, these horses and their riders were apparently commissioned by God to patrol the earth, to report back on the status of the nations. All are at peace, they report in verse 11. It's a conclusion that causes one described as the angel of the Lord in verse 12 to begin interrogating God through prayer. O Lord of hosts, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been angry these 70 years? The angel of the Lord is disturbed by what he sees as the absence of God's love and justice. The Hebrew people at this point had been given permission to return to the land of Israel. They had been in in exile. They had been given permission, though, to return to the land God had promised them. And yet, their presence in the land was uncomfortable. It was full of suffering. The people were eventually able to build a temple, but even that was disappointing. The elders who remembered the Solomonic temple wept at the sight of this new building. The fulfillment of God's promises felt incomplete. And in the meantime, these horses and their riders were now reporting that all the world's at peace. Babylon had taken the Hebrews into exile and committed abhorrent acts of violence against them and even against God when they tore down the temple that he had built through Solomon to convey in brick and mortar his holiness and magnificence. There was nothing so sacred that the Babylonians were unwilling to destroy it. And now, they're living at peace. God had not yet held them accountable for their 
violations and violence. Not that his people were innocent. Even those who returned to Israel recognized that God had a right to send them into exile for their disobedience. They say as much in verse 6. They repented, it says there, and, and said, The Lord of hosts has dealt with us according to our ways and deeds, just as he planned to do. This was their admission that their ancestors deserved God's judgment. But the Babylonians, like many people whom God sets in positions of power, took the power allotted them and abused it. They had gone too far. Their appetite for power and dominance went beyond God's sense of justice. And so God responds to the petition of the angel of the Lord by re-articulating his love for his people and his commitment to justice in the world. In verse 15, God responds to the angel, I am extremely angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they made the disaster worse. In the second vision, the ones with the horns and the craftsmen, he shows Zechariah in verse 21 that he intends to cut them off, like a, a craftsman might cut off the horns that were set on the four corners of an altar in the ancient world. He'll bring justice to the world so that those who have been oppressed will find rest and peace, while those who are at ease, who have abused their God-given power, will be held accountable and punished for their sins. In the midst of the nations at ease, God reiterates his commitment to justice. He also reiterates his love for his people. In fact, just as he was extremely angry with the nations at ease, so also he is extremely jealous for Jerusalem. As a sign of his love, he intends to live in the midst of that holy city again. My house shall be built in it, he says in verse 16. And in his presence, the city will be built up and flourish again, as in the days before Babylon raked it into the sea. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, God promises in verse 17. I will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. These two visions provide assurances of God's love and justice for a people who were grieved and confused by the absence of both in their lives. But at the end of them, Zechariah wakes up, or he comes out of his trance, or whatever it was he was experiencing, and the reality was the same as before the visions began. The nations were still at ease. God's people were still uncomfortable in their own land. They were living in a ruin. The ghost of the house that had been there surrounded them. All that was left of it were the two chimneys, a pile of old foundation stones, and the well top with a pump, rusty pump lying beside it. But now they had the promises of God, reiterated at a time of great doubt and distress that they could cling to in the midst of the rubble. The promises of God gave them strength to endure the present and the hope that what they are experiencing now will not always be so. With the promises of God in hand, they had the opportunity to exercise faith. God had given the people his word. And we, who continue to live in a time of unfulfillment, where we question God's love, we question his sense of justice. We now have God's word made flesh. 
to assure us of his love and justice. While the Hebrews had only Zachariah's visions to cling to, we have a flesh and blood person upon whom to set our hope and a spirit living within us to bolster our faith. This person is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh. In him, we see the justice of God satisfied so that returning to Christ in faith, we find that he's returning to us in compassion. He has sent his spirit to comfort us, to assure us of his gracious choice, for he is very jealous for those who have been made in God's image and who now possess his spirit. In the end, God will give rest to you. Those things that afflict you will trouble you no longer. Those relationships that are broken will be amended. He will do this for you because in Christ, you are forgiven, have been brought back from exile, from the land of your sin. He loves you. And while we are presently living in an age of grace, we believe that Christ will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. He will establish justice in this world. The mother of Jesus sang of this promise of God as she awaited the birth of her son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. She's saying his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered, scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. As we await this promise of justice and love to come true in our lives, we have the spirit of God in which we walk amongst the ruins, envisioning what it will be like when the brokenness will be healed and the sorrow turned to joy. To that end, we even work. For we do not walk through this world in ignorance or wishful thinking, but in the confidence of God's promises. Those good things we can envision and hope for will one day be our reality. Until then, we work to pull the promises of God into the present. This is the life of faith to which God has called us. In the ruins of this world, we desire a better country. Right? That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called our God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for us. That city is Siloam Springs made new with love and justice in the hearts of every citizen. As we wait for it in faith, let us quicken its coming through the good work that God has given us to do in these hopeful ruins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.